Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. When Dion was six years old, she heard a deep rumble and turned to see a tsunami of mud barreling toward her village. She remembers her mother scooping her up and to save her from this boiling mud. Her neighbors ran for their lives. Sixteen villages, including Dion's, were wiped out. After a decade of catastrophe, nearly 60,000 people have been displaced from what once was a thriving industrial in it and residential area in East Java, located 20 kilometers from Indonesia's second largest city. Dozens of factories, schools, and mosques were submerged under 60 feet of mud. Looks like a moonscape instead of someplace where humans would live. The film is called Grit, and it is the story of a the damage done by a man-made disaster. And the Grit is premiering this Monday, September 9th, on PBS's POV series. And we're joined today by the co-director and producer of the film, and that would be Cynthia Wade. Cynthia Wade, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. The film is called Grit, and it is a story of an industrial accident uh, that I had not heard anything about until I saw your film. Tell me a little bit about how you came to this project. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard of anything either. It's When I tell people that for six years I was pursuing a film, working on a film where a giant unstoppable mud flow has sunk 16 villages under 60 feet of mud and continues to erupt more than a dozen years later at, at just this massive speed, people say, wait, 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 I haven't heard of this. It, it's displaced 60,000 people. Um, and it's in Indonesia and largely has displaced so many people that it looks like a landscape. It's just like when you walk onto the site for miles and miles and miles, all you see is cracked mud. Um, it's really extraordinary. The majority of international scientists believe that it was caused by natural gas drilling, by a local Indonesian gas drilling company um, it, it's believed that the reason that the drill um, hit this underground pocket of mud, which then has continued to explode, is because it didn't have a casement on the drill. It was a, it was a uh, shoddy way of drilling. That's the belief. And so mud just started exploding up in May 2006 and has continued now. It's, it's you know, obviously many, many years later, and there doesn't look like there's an end in sight in terms of the mud exploding. There's a couple of things I want to unpack in that, scientifically speaking. First of all, who knew that there is sort of this boiling river ocean of mud underground like this? And I don't know if this is particularly specific to Indonesia because there might be a lot of volcanoes in that part of the world, or I don't know why, but is, is this an unusual geological phenomena? The mud under the ground in a place like Indonesia is not, um, and it is obviously a very volcanic area. Um, the, the depth and the strength of which the mud continues to surge to the surface and um, it just explodes, it explodes in the air, it's mind-boggling, it's beyond what you can imagine with, at Yellowstone. 
Um, that, I think, was unexpected. And certainly in terms of trying to stop or slow it, that has been, you know, more than a dozen years of struggle locally of, like, how do we stop this? How do we slow it down? How do we build levees so that more villages do not sink under this heavy, thick, hot mud? That's important to point out because they this is an ongoing operation to uh, mitigate the damage being done by this river of hot hot mud. And that's a big part of the story in terms of the cost of what's happened. By the way, just sort of anecdotally, or maybe tangentially, I should say, the uh, this reminds me of the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in that, the, mm-hmm. in that they couldn't, they didn't have the technology in place that should have been in place. In this, in the case of BP, they didn't have a, a protective, uh, a, kind of a, a fail-safe uh, a way of controlling oil coming out of the uh, of the ocean floor, and in this case, they just simply—it sounds like—and from the film, it looks like they just went too far with the drill that they had. Mm-hmm. Is that is that fair? Yes, and and th- it's, it gets very technical, but there was a casement that normally would have been on the drill and wasn't, and so the way that the drill burrowed deep, deep down, two miles down underground in. Um, under the earth's surface, it hit this, this, and it is like a river. It's, it's almost like an underground volcano of mud. Technically, it's not an underground volcano, but that's, if you can imagine that, it's just this huge flowing pocket. That's what, that's what exploded to the surface. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the impact here. And we mentioned Dion and, and the, her village and the impact it had um, on literally thousands of people. So the consequences of this river of mud as we described, you said, I think, 16 villages that were wiped yes. out? So, uh-huh. and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's outside of the second, it's not, in a, it's not in a remote area of Indonesia. It's in East Java, and it's outside of the second largest city in Indonesia, which is a vast, giant country with nearly 300 million people living in it. So um, it's not like it's in some remote area. There are factories 60 feet under the mud. There are mosques. There are homes, there are schools, there are businesses. It's, it's almost like a modern-day Pompeii. Right. And when I say thousands of people, I don't mean they were wiped out. They had to flee their villages. So I, I think I left that sort of hanging. So I want to clarify that. But there was a lot of damage. And I'm, I'm certain there were some deaths involved in what happened and all this. And what you said, 60 feet of mud is there now and more continues to pour out. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Dion and her family and her mom and sort of the, the not only the economic displacement, but also their efforts to try to hold people accountable for what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in approaching a story like this, you, you obviously can tell, a filmmaker could tell a, an environmental story and really focus on the, the drilling practices and the environment. You could, you could tell more of a political story. I and my co-director, Sasha, tend to tell more personal stories. And so in, in all of this information and what we're talking about, we needed to figure out how to organize this information around a personal narrative. While we were exploring this story, um, and I came into the story in 2012, I was in Indonesia working on something completely different, and somebody said to me, you know, you, if you can, if you can stay a couple of extra days, you should visit um, the mud site and, and just see the mud site because there really hasn't been a documentary about this. 
And I said, what? What do you mean the mud site? I hadn't heard of it because there's not been a lot of reporting about it. And we can talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. So I went and visited the mud site in 2012 and was absolutely, I mean, it's, it's just like you've been, literally, you've been, as I said, dropped on the moon. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable. And that's all you can see for miles. As I was putting together the story and as Sasha and I partnered up on this story, we wanted to be able to follow a family that was directly impacted. And Dion was six years old and in school when this exploded and her pregnant mother, she remembers her pregnant mother running towards her and screaming and grabbing her and running and neighbors running. And um, so by the time we met Dion, she was about... 13, almost 14 years old, and we thought, what, you know, at this point, the villagers and a lot of the survivors were mounting protests against the company um, that was drilling, and they were still waiting, you know, to figure out how they could rebuild their homes, et cetera, six years later, seven years later. So we decided to really hang the narrative on Dion and her family so that the audience would have essentially a guide. Um, And then as we were explaining this, uh, really complicated information, it was really through Dion's eyes and Dion's voice. And so for six years, we followed the story and watched Dion grow up on screen. This disaster has created an environment for people to become politically active because, as you mentioned, the company that was doing the drilling, La Pindo, is uh, was absolved by the courts uh, of any responsibility, even though they're the ones who drilled. Their, the claim from them was that this was caused by an earthquake that happened 150, 180 miles away, something like that. Uh, so that somehow absolved them of any responsibility. And yet they continue uh, almost without any, any accountability to do what they've been doing. Um, so this has created this environment for, for political activity. Would you go ahead and, if you would, describe a little bit about how that manifests itself? The head of the, of the drilling company, the, the head of the, of the company that um, owned the drilling company, was also the minister of welfare for the government. So there's a lot of, you know, it, the, the film really questions the role of corporate accountability in the face of a democracy. And a lot of people don't know that Indonesia, it's the largest Muslim population in the world, it's between 250 to probably 280 million people, nearly 300 million people in this vast, I mean, there are near, over 12,000 islands in Indonesia, 8,000 of them are inhabited. And if you imagine the length of from London to Baghdad, that, that stretch, that is how long Indonesia is. So a lot of Westerners, a lot of Americans, they know Bali, you know, they may have heard of Jakarta. But this is, this is a vast and very important country. It is also a democracy. It's a fledgling democracy because for 30 years there was a dictatorship in Indonesia, um, but it is a democracy now. So it's an interesting mix of a very large democracy. It is the third largest democracy in the world. It is the largest Muslim population. It is a country that has come out of a nearly 30-year dictatorship. And there are lots of corporate interests that are influencing what's happening politically, yeah. what's happening in the government, which may resonate with some of the audience <laughs> members today in terms of, you know, what's happening here. Dion and her, and her villagers, in the wake of losing schools and um, jobs and livelihoods, 
they mount a protest and a fight against this drilling company. A, you know, it's a decades-long fight in order to get restitution, in order to get some kind of compensation, some kind of money back so that they can rebuild their lives. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Cynthia Wade. She's the co-director and producer of the film Grit, and it will be premiering. Grit will be premiering on the uh, PBS POV series this Monday September 9th, uh, September 9th, 9-9-19 is the uh, calendar date, and it is, uh, again, POV, check it, it's usually 10 o'clock in your, but check your local listing, but check, it uh, should be around 10 o'clock on the, on the schedule, uh, so make sure of that, POV, that's, that's one of those series that have been around for a long time, one of the premier uh, series for highlighting great documentary, great investigative reporting, uh, you'll find anywhere. And I also want to acknowledge Sasha Friedlander, who is a co-director, co-producer, and, and editor of the film. She's not with us today, but Cynthia is. And um, I know that this must have been a difficult uh, shoot for you. You, What was the period of time that you worked on this film? It was six years. So it was 2012 to 2018. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. And it was not a funded film, I, as I said, came into the story in 2012, but I really, there are three questions I think that you need to ask as a filmmaker before you embark on a film. One is, why this story? Why now? Why is now the right time to tell the story? And why me? Why am I the right person to tell the story? And the, and the why me? I could not answer. I am an American woman living in the United States. I had gone to Indonesia. I saw this. I thought, I feel like I can raise money for this. But I'm not the right person to tell the story. So I kind of sat on this idea, and I had some initial footage because I was, I was there in 2012. I came up with a little trailer. I was really sitting with it, but I thought, I'm not the right person to tell the story. I was also very aware, though, that the story wasn't getting out because the head of the drilling company also owns a lot of the media in um, Indonesia. So the story was not getting out and certainly wasn't um, getting out in the way it should have internationally and to the West. So I also knew that I could potentially help get the story out and raise the money for the story, but I would need to find partners in this. And it took me about a year to find Sasha. And Sasha is somebody who grew up partially in Indonesia. She speaks the language, Bahasa. She worked as a journalist um, in Indonesia and also had directed a feature-length documentary in East Java. So she's somebody who has deep connections, a lifelong connection to Indonesia, and has lived and worked there. And together, we put together a team that consisted of both Indonesian crew members and American crew members. And then that, that solved the why me? Because then I was like, I can, ra- I can figure this out. I can raise money. So we wrote a lot of grants. And, you know, sometimes we wouldn't get the grant. Sometimes we'd get $5,000, which doesn't get you very far. But we, like... Slowly over time, we were able to raise money, and then we would carefully plan out these trips and go there. And usually we were there for two to three weeks at a time, and we would just kind of embed ourselves in the village and with Dion and with her mother and neighbors, and then really kind of just, you know, push it and run out of money and then come back to the States, and Sasha would edit, and I would start writing grants again, and it was we would just did that cycle over and over and over again for six years. Yeah. So, so it was a very, very slow build in making the film. For, for filmmakers who are listening to this, I have heard this 
and I believe it to be true um, the more I hear, and that is when you go to a funder, when you when you write your grant, grants, uh, the kind of the rule of thumb is they have to see it at least four or five times before they mm-hmm. like, in some way believe that you're for real, that you're actually going to follow through on this project, or you've established some kind of a impression with them. So it's rare that on a first run at a grant that you're going to get it. But it, it's so just what you said, perseverance is, is part of the equation when you're going to make a, a documentary film, especially a documentary film where it may not jump out. The, 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 the relevance of it may not jump out at the mm-hmm. somewhat right away. So it's a testament to you and to Sasha and your team that uh, you stuck with it. And you've produced a wonderful film. And a film that just not only is it that, is it well done technically, but it's also a film uh, about something that, it, as you've talked about, is shocking that you've never heard of, and 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 you and I you've explained some of it right now with the control of the media by one of the key players in this film. And I'm going to Burizai Bakri, who is the owner of Lapindo, the the company that was responsible for drilling. So there are some elements here that you get into in the film that go away a ways towards explaining why me and so many other people have never heard of this before. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, what stories are being reported? How are they being reported? It wasn't, it wasn't just that the story wasn't being reported, but often it's like, how is it being reported? How is the story being told, right? So if Aburiz Bakri, who was the CEO of the company that owned a lot of companies in his family's business, including this drilling company, Lapindo, um, if he owns, if his family owns four out of the five media stations in Indonesia, either the story's not going to be reported or the story that, well, you know, 180 miles away, two and a half days before there was an earthquake, which, you know, there are earthquakes that happen in Indonesia. Um, but sp- it, was, it was two and a half days earlier. It was 180 miles away. Right. Um, and... And because they could say, well, there was an earthquake that happened, and it did happen that distance and that time away, then, you know, he's the minister of welfare, he's got lots of friends in the government, then the government can, the courts can decide, well, really, this was a natural disaster, not a man-made disaster, even though the majority of international scientists disagree with that. Increasingly now, around the world, there there are two types of media now. There's... uh sort of the PBS model of some kind of um, underwritten by people who actually care about journalism. And and then there's the state, basically the state-controlled media. And we see it all over the world, and Indonesia seems to be no exception. Uh, so, And by the way, just this anecdotal, uh, just incidental to, to your story, but uh, Jakarta is sinking the capital city of Indonesia is literally sinking right now. They're going. To, they're talking about moving the entire capital to another place because it is literally because of all the groundwater that's been taken out and just an environmental degradation of the area has created a situation where a city of several million people is literally sinking into the earth. So uh, it's a. Uh, this is there's a lot of things going on in Indonesia that are important to the world. I know that uh, the, the the rainforests are being cut down for peanut oil. There are a lot of things that are crazy, crazy in you know in terms of just uh, greed and and no accountability. And this is one example of that as well. 
where that happened. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the look of uh, of grit. Tell me a little bit about sort of your the style, if you will, of of, of and the look of the film. Yeah. So look, you know, to, to ask people to sit for uh, an extended period of time to watch a documentary that is subtitled about mud. I mean, <laughs> like, that's, that's a lot to ask of people. There's great content out there. And, um, and it's also, like, it's a really hard time to, to be living right now, I think, just globally. Like, it's just, there's a lot of really uh, depressing things that are happening. There are a lot of crises. Um, so to ask people to sit down and watch a documentary about mud and by the way read the subtitles that's that's really that's a tall order so our goal was to make this as cinematically striking and really sort of out of this world gorgeous as possible and and the irony is is that mud makes for an extraordinarily beautiful i mean it's 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 heartbreaking and it's tragic but the mud itself is eerie and incredibly beautiful to photograph. And these explosions of the mud, just crazy, like crazy explosions of the mud, almost like fireworks in the air, and these plumes of gases and smokes, and the sky colors, and the mud. Sometimes, you know, in the, in the dry season, it's very cracked and chalky and hard-looking. But then in the, in the monsoon seasons, in the wet seasons, it's this, this viscous, gloopy, you know, wet slimy looking mud <laughs> so um and it, and so it had many different personalities the mud so the mud itself is a character and i brought on a cinema it brought on many cinematographers all of whom are really accomplished in both documentary and in commercial and fiction shooting and in many ways we shot this like a fiction film more sort of proactively often in a documentary you're kind of running and chasing the story and your shooting can be very reactive. Like, oh, I need to get that. Oh, I need to get that. And there's a scrappy quality to it, which can be really good in a documentary, particularly if you don't have the money. You just are you just kind of running and gunning. But in this, because it was so consistent in terms of the mud exploding every moment of every day and the mud kind of glooping along very slow, and because the villagers' fight was over such an extended period of time, we could really plan out shots. The fabrics, just in terms of what's hanging in homes, in these colorfully painted homes, and what people are wearing, uh, just the, the prayers, the, um, the call to prayer there, the sounds there, the, m- motor, the motorbikes, the gloopiness, and you could hear the rumble of the mud. We spent a long time photographing and then really building a, a soundscape for the film so that it's it's extremely visceral and experiential in terms of watching it. And in that way, we shot on mostly on an Alexa, uh, an Amira camera, which is a really beautiful camera, all with prime lenses. For a layperson, what that means is instead of zooming in and zooming out, which is, is like a, a zoom lens, you affix a fixed lens to the camera. You say, I'm, this is a 50 millimeter lens and that's what I'm going to see in the frame and I'm just going to hold that shot. And then I'm going to put on a 25 millimeter. I'm going to put on an 80 millimeter so that we were very, very proactive and careful about what we were shooting and how we were shooting it to really tell the story as visually as possible, like to show, not tell, like to pull out as much of the voice and the voiceover as possible so that we're just showing, not telling, because it's, it's just so powerful that way. Mm-hmm. So it was a proactive way of 
shooting, and in some ways it was much more like fiction shooting, where we were planning out shots and we were thinking about how to cover things. And so there's there's drone footage. We used the red camera for some of it. There's there's all kinds of footage, both from the air, but also from you know, literally from your feet sinking into the mud, from from the bottom to the top and all around. And that was, you know, it's it's very very hot. It's very very sticky. It's very very grimy there. You can smell the mud. It's it's like very sulfur. Like it's um. It just gets into your skin and hair. You're sort of baking on this moonscape all of the time. There were it's sort of tough conditions, but often when I teach documentary, I tell my students, sometimes the worse the weather, the better the footage is going to look on camera. Like right. when it's raining, when it's dark, when it's cloudy, when it's you're getting there at 4 in the morning because you want to get the sunrise on the moonscape and you've been creeping out there since 3.30 a.m., but then you wait and you're patient and you get the glint of this orange sun coming up again over this moonscape. That's really when you get the magic of the cinema of it. So that was very, very important to us. Yeah, it has, you couldn't agree more. It has a beautiful look to it. And you're right, because this mud is relatively static and it is a character in the film, you can linger on it. You can really bring out all of the different aspects of it, the way it looks and the way and the impact it's having on these people's lives. Yeah, it's a beautiful look. Well, well thank you. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, well, the film is called Grit, and we've been talking to the co-director, co-producer, and that would be uh, the co-producer along with uh, Cynthia Wade is uh, Sasha Freelander. She also is, uh, Sasha's also the editor. And, um, but Cynthia Wade, thank you so much for your time today and, and, and stopping by to talk to us about this terrific documentary film, Grit. It's premiering again on POV on September 9th. Uh, it's Monday, September 9th. Check it out. It, check your local listings for the time, but it's screening 10 o'clock generally around the country, so be looking for it there. And I look forward to future work. I hope uh, hope you when that comes out, the next uh, project, I hope you come back and join us again here on Film School Radio. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 